It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I think it's a slow motion, ongoing, decades-long American tragedy. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Mehdi Hassan. Whatever happened to all those kids who were stolen from their parents at the border? Why did we just forget about perhaps the biggest scandal, the worst crime of the Trump presidency? It was not thought through. There was no plan. And today, um, we're still picking up the pieces in the aftermath. That's my guest today, Jacob Soboroff, NBC News and MSNBC correspondent and author of the new book, Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. He's been covering this crisis, this scandal at the border from the very beginning. So on today's show, the war on migrants and especially the theft of migrant children from their parents. How and why did it happen? And is it even truly over? Do you remember this? That was a recording of 10 Central American children sobbing desperately after being separated from their parents in June of 2018 here in the United States. That was a recording obtained by ProPublica and which promptly went viral and grabbed news headlines. It was even played in the White House briefing room. That recording helped make ordinary Americans aware of the abuses that were being perpetrated at their southern border in their name by the federal government, by the Trump administration. Specifically and shamefully, the deliberate systematic separation of thousands of brown-skinned migrant children from their parents at the US-Mexico border on the orders of President Donald J. Trump. And for a few months in 2018, what was called child separation was the biggest story in America, if not the world. Families are being torn apart, thousands of them. Kids taken hundreds, even thousands of miles away from their parents. Young children, toddlers even, housed in so-called tender age facilities. If you don't want your child to be separated, then don't bring them across the border illegally. The pictures of children being held in what appear to be cages are deeply disturbing. The Pope labeling it immoral. Two years later, though, we've kind of moved on as a media industry and as a nation. To be fair, so many other Trump scandals have sucked up so much oxygen since, whether it was the government shutdown, uh, the Mueller inquiry, uh, Ukraine and the whole impeachment saga, the attacks on protesters in recent weeks, and of course the ongoing catastrophic mishandling of the coronavirus crisis. There's just so much to keep track of and to keep us outraged. Still, for me personally, It stands as the biggest, most outrageous, most shocking, most inexcusable scandal of the Trump presidency so far. What's blandly called child separation was, in fact, racism, kidnapping and child abuse all rolled into one. In fact, Physicians for Human Rights in a report earlier this year said the Trump family separation policy constituted torture. Torture on American soil. The torture of kids kids. It's difficult to overstate the sheer inhumanity of it all. 
Children were forcibly removed from the arms of their parents. Babies were ripped from the breasts of their mothers. And the border agents who did all this somehow went home to their families, to their own kids, and slept fine at night. Meanwhile, the people in Washington who gave them those orders, who made the cruel and inhumane policies, they're either still in government, having never faced any real consequences for their part in these crimes, or in the case of former Trump chief of staff, General John Kelly, or former Homeland Security Secretary, Kirsten Nielsen, they're making money in the private sector. In fact, Kelly is on the board of a company called Caliburn International, which operates shelters for migrant children. You cannot make this shit up. These people are vile. They have no shame. Many current and former members of this administration, including the Attorney General at the time, Jeff Sessions, claim to be evangelical Christians. And yet they have defended, excused, the torture and abuse of not just refugees, but refugee children. They're not following in the footsteps of Christ. They're a moral disgrace. Since the summer of 2017, the Trump administration is believed to have taken at least 5,500 kids from their parents at the border, although the real number could be even higher than that. No one knows for sure. In February of this year, the US Government Accountability Office said, quote, it is unclear the extent to which Border Patrol has accurate records of separated families in its data system. And as reporter Jacob Soboroff writes in his new book, Separated Inside an American Tragedy, quote, there are families who were quickly put back together and children who were, as predicted, permanently orphaned. As I pointed out on this show back in 2018, that was not a side effect of having a tough immigration policy. That was their tough immigration policy. That was the goal, the prime objective of an administration filled with white nationalists and apologists for white nationalists. An administration whose immigration policies are drawn up by a man, Stephen Miller, who late last year was revealed to have sent white nationalist literature and racist stories about immigrants in internal emails. No discussion, in fact, about the immigration policies of this administration can be complete without mentioning the racism and white nationalism and just pure cruelty that motivates and drives those policies. So yes, this administration has used kids, targeted kids, migrant kids, refugee kids, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable, the most powerless of the powerless, to achieve their policy goals at the border, to crack down on immigration, to placate their far-right base, and keep brown people out of the US by any means necessary. And here's what's so important to remember as we sit here overwhelmed by news and scandal in this crazy, chaotic summer of 2020. It never really ended. Hundreds of migrant children continue to be detained in facilities across the country this year, even as the coronavirus spread inside of those facilities and infected guards and detainees alike. Last month, a federal judge in L.A. ordered the release of those kids by the middle of this month. And guess how the Trump administration responded on Tuesday? By telling the court that if they're forced to release the kids, they won't release any of the parents who they might be detained with. Got that? Family separation all over again. Imagine being the parents of those kids. Keep your kids with you and risk the coronavirus. Or have them taken from you and sent out into the world, and who knows if you'll ever see them again. What's called child separation is still with us is still a policy dream of the Trump administration and yet a total nightmare for the thousands of refugees and asylum seeker families who arrive in this country from Central America every year seeking protection from war, from violence, from rape.
My guest today is one of the tenacious and I should add deeply compassionate journalists who helped uncover the Trump administration's vile policy of child torture at the border back in 2018 and who not only contextualized the story for us on our TV screens, but also humanized it. Jacob Soboroff of NBC News and MSNBC was in fact one of the first reporters to gain access to the notorious child detention facilities in Brownsville and McAllen, Texas. Here he is reporting live on MSNBC from outside one of them in the summer of 2018 and not holding back. There's a big mess going on right now. And even the Border Patrol inside this building says they're overstaffed. Uh, they don't have enough resources. Uh, the system is just getting stressed out because the Trump administration decided to put this into place. Uh, and the consequences really haven't been worked out. And, and the biggest consequence of all is thousands of young children in a way that has never been done before are taken from their parents. And when you hear the Trump administration say, this has been done before, this is a Democrat policy, uh, this is not unusual, uh, that's BS, frankly. Jacob's reporting earned him the Cronkite Award for Excellence in Television Political Journalism and with his colleagues, the 2019 Hillman Prize for Broadcast Journalism. Now he's written a powerful and at times heartbreaking new book about the entire saga called Separated, Inside an American Tragedy. And he joins me now from Yuma, Arizona, just yards from the southern border with Mexico. Jacob, thanks for joining me on Deconstructed. Thanks, Matty. Uh, you've written this new book, Separated Inside an American Tragedy, having covered uh, the 2018 crisis at the border with those kids in cages, with those children taken from their parents, almost exactly two years ago. Is this book, Jacob, about a chapter in recent American history, or is this a book about what's still happening right now, an ongoing American tragedy? I think it's a slow motion, ongoing, decades-long American tragedy, Mehdi, and this is the first time I've ever done a podcast sitting 20 to 30 yards away from a 30-foot-tall border wall installed by President Trump, uh, which is exactly where I'm sitting right now in Yuma as I wait for him to arrive here. You know, the wall and Donald Trump have become a symbol of United States immigration policy. This is an immigration policy, however, um, that has, as I said, spanned decades, spanned Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, and since an official Border Patrol doctrine in 1994 called Prevention Through Deterrence, uh, the goal of which was to deter migrants from coming to the United States to make them go on a dangerous and deadly journey uh, where they very well could die trying to get into the United States, deterrence, pain and suffering has been a part of U.S. immigration policy and family separations, which I had the misfortune of seeing with my own eyes, was, was Donald Trump's extreme extension of that policy. Yes, the extreme extension. As you say, you're right to say that this started on previous presidents' watches, you know, Bill Clinton in the 90s, George Bush, Barack Obama, the quote-unquote the deporter-in-chief, and then you have Trump escalating it in this grotesque way. Um, a total of around 4,300 children, I believe, were quote-unquote separated from their parents at the border. This all came to a head in May, June 2018. So a question that I think a lot of listeners will want to know the answer to, I know I do, do we know for sure, Jacob, if all of those children were eventually reunited with their families? We don't. And if it weren't for the ACLU and a federal judge in San Diego, the vast majority of them may never uh, have been. It was a negligent, dangerous approach uh, at putting this policy into place, sloppy. And the mechanism by which the separations were tracked I think it actually would be even generous to call it a mechanism. It was not 
thought through. There was no plan. And today, um, we're still picking up the pieces in the aftermath. And and you mentioned a number in the 4,000 range. I think the most recent number, according to the ACLU, and this is a constantly evolving number, is over 5,000 children, including children separated after the policy had nominally ended when Donald Trump signed the executive order on June 20th, 2018, ending a policy that days earlier he said didn't even exist. Yes, First, it didn't exist. And then when they stopped it, it still carried on, as you point out, even after the uh, the judicial and executive order um, fallout. Um, let me ask you this. One thing that bothers me, and I don't want to knock the title of your excellent book, because I know how hard it is to come up with a title. Mm-hmm. And I know that separated is the word that's been used by everyone, even by me on occasion, as shorthand, to describe this zero tolerance policy at the border and what the Trump administration did to migrant families back in 2018. But for me, separated always feels like an understatement. It feels too clinical, um, empty a word, because what happened was child theft. It was child kidnapping. It was in many ways child abuse by the US government. And I worry sometimes that our journalistic shorthands often end up underplaying how bad things are on the ground. They sanitize things too much. Am I being unfair? No, I think your point is well taken. And the reason I chose separated as well is that for me, it doesn't just describe torture, frankly, and that's the word that Physicians for Human Rights, a Nobel Peace Prize winning organization, has used subsequently to describe what these children went through. It meant the clinical definition of torture. Um, But it also described most Americans' uh, mental separation from how we got to this point, inability to understand and comprehend how the government did this to children, and in some cases, babies. And, And that also includes me. I was covering the border even before Donald Trump became president, when when Barack Obama was president and was dubbed the deporter in chief, as you mentioned by immigration activists, I, you know, I was on the what I thought was the front lines of immigration reporting, and and frankly, I completely missed it myself until it slapped me in the face. And that's what I wanted to make clear in the book is that separated is not just the physical act of what happened to these parents and children, but it really also is a mental state of most Americans. Uh, about the way that we deal with immigration in in, in this country. So, uh, you know, again, your point's well taken. I think that it's much more vile what happened to these children than, than the simple word or simple act of being taken from their parents. Um, but I think that the word also applies to, to many of us in our everyday lives. No, that's a, that's a very fair point. And I would urge everyone to read Jacob's book. Uh, it's an excellent book. You tell the story of Jose in the book, a young boy from northern Guatemala. Uh, that story is a central thread throughout your book. He fled with his father Juan to the United States in order to escape drug traffickers who were threatening his family. Can you tell us a little bit more about Jose? Why did you choose his story? Well, the truth of the matter is, and this is a bit of a spoiler, but I ultimately met his father, Juan, and Juan and Jose are pseudonyms that they picked themselves to protect their own identity and the identity of their family that they left behind in Guatemala. But they come um, from the northern state of Petén, and and Petén, um, which is actually a place I haven't been to, and they asked me not to go to. I've been to Guatemala on several occasions, but I didn't go to their home because they were worried about what might happen to their wife they left behind. They were threatened with violence. Juan was the owner of a small convenience store uh, and basically got into trouble after a vehicle that he sold was sold to someone else and fell into the hands uh, of what he tells me and told the United States government in his asylum application were were narco traffickers, he suspected. Uh, And until he would turn over the rights, the documentation, which he no longer had to his car, uh, they were going to put a threat on, on his life. 
And so he decided to pick up and leave with Jose, come to the United States, go to Arizona, where he had crossed twice successfully before to come and work earlier in his life when his, his son was was younger, um, but for the first time decided to pick up and leave with his boy uh, to protect him. Yeah. And once they got to the United States, to the place where they thought represented safety and security, I'm actually sitting probably 10 miles away from that exact spot um, right now, and the president will visit almost that exact spot as I speak to you today, as we record this, they were taken from each other in a way that nobody could have ever anticipated, even though it was going on by the time they left uh, Guatemala and started their journey to the United States in May of 2018. So it's interesting you mentioned in the context of one that he had crossed twice earlier before for work. This time he came to protect his child. We have this great debate, of course, as you know better than me, about are these people refugees and asylum seekers or are they all economic migrants coming to work? In your anecdotal experience, having interviewed so many of these people, having covered their stories, do, what, what were they? What were them, especially back in 2018 when it kind of hit these hit the headlines in that huge way with everyone in the country is talking about why have they brought children with them, et cetera, et cetera. How many of the how many people you were talking to were in your you know the, the story you just tell of one that sounds like a genuine asylum application and I have no reason to to doubt them you know and I think yeah. that the vast majority of people I came into contact with were coming to the United States from Central America from Guatemala Honduras or El Salvador in order to seek asylum you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. And when I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about this, that that nobody's perfect. And actually, when I heard the Reverend Al Sharpton delivered the eulogy for George Floyd and used the biblical example of a rejected stone becoming the cornerstone, um, you know, in our conversation about, about race and about police brutality and violence, it made me think of covering immigration at the border. Nobody is perfect. Nobody comes here um, with a sparkling clean record or the perfect story that you want to hold up and make an example uh, to change the entire country's imagination on immigration. Yes. Um, he had come here before twice illegally. He freely admitted it to me and he laughed and smiled when he said they didn't catch me previously. And I think it's not mutually exclusive. You can be an economic migrant and also later in your life become a refugee um, from violence. And I think mm. that too often we boil it down to it's one or the other. Yes. But these stories often intersect. And I, I think we do a disservice, or the general public does a disservice when they, when we try to distill it to one or another, because oftentimes that's, it really isn't the case. Uh, and it's not just Latin American families that we're talking about, of course. You describe a Congolese mother and her daughter who were separated trying to enter the U.S. Uh, you say, quote, the mother was taken to an adult immigration jail in San Diego and her daughter was sent to a shelter in Chicago. You also say that when she was told her daughter was in Chicago, she did not know what the word meant. How do people like that woman and her daughter a, end up at the southern border? And how is their story different to some of the more familiar Latin American stories uh, that you, you tell in your reporting? Well, I think that the southern border has become an entry point for people from around the world looking to seek refuge in the United States and seek asylum. And if it wasn't for that Congolese woman and her daughter, uh, who later became known as, as Miss L, uh, none of these 5,000 plus families would have been reunited because she became the plaintiff, the original plaintiff in the ACLU case yes. uh, against, against the government. And so what happened to her and her story was slightly different. She presented legally at the San Ysidro port of entry in between San Diego and Tijuana, where you can legally walk up and declare asylum as part of an internationally recognized legal process. And the United States government told her they didn't believe her took her away from her daughter, and not until a DNA test confirmed it were they placed back together. 
but that wasn't soon enough to stop the thousands of separations, you know, from happening. And, and that's another example, Mehdi, of it's not, it's never a perfect story. You know, she thought she was doing it the right way, but the United States government challenged her on that and it set off, you know, this whole chain of events. I think we've learned over the last four years that for this administration, there is no right way of claiming asylum that's or right. coming into the country. They that's just right. don't want that's people right. coming into the country. Um, you describe in the book the moment in June 2018 when then Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen infamously tweeted, we do not have a policy of separating families at the border, period. You say in the book, my eyes widened when I saw it. You've got to be kidding, I thought. Come on. Um, where were you at that moment? And why did that tweet from her so stun you? Because earlier that week, I was inside the McAllen uh, Border Patrol Processing Center. Uh, they call it Ursula in the Border Patrol. And that's in McAllen, South Texas, where they let us in. Um, Katie Waldman, who later became Katie Miller, the wife of Stephen Miller and now the vice president's communications director, was at the time a spokesperson for Kirsten Nielsen. She invited me and another group of journalists into that center to see with our own eyes what family separations looked like, because I think they believed um, that with outrage from the general public based on media attention, Congress would do what the Trump administration wanted, which was pass more restrictive border regulations. Of course, that backfired. And the reason that I was was so flabbergasted by what Kirsten Nielsen tweeted is that days earlier, if not if not hours earlier, I had been inside the center where I saw with my own eyes separated children sitting on concrete floors covered by those silver blankets under a security contractor in a watchtower. It makes me sick every time I talk about it. It gives me the chills every time I talk about it as then the father of a, of a two-year-old um, boy. It was, it was, and I don't know, I really don't know other way, way to describe it other than disgusting. To see social workers standing around, border patrol agents not allowed to touch the children, um, all because of official government policy when many of the families in there didn't know what they were about to experience themselves, you know, to this day leaves me speechless. And to hear the Secretary of Homeland Security, who I didn't know at the time, but I now know in writing the book, had, had signed the policy into place, it, it's just wrong. There's no other way to say it. I mean, this is an administration that says openly, don't believe the evidence in front of your eyes. Don't believe what you see with your own eyes and don't believe what you hear with your own ears. It's the, They're the gaslighters in chief. Um, you say early in the book, you sum things up this way. You say, quote, what I have now unequivocally learned is that the Trump administration's family separation policy was an avoidable catastrophe made worse by people who could have made it better at multiple inflection points. In what sense, Jacob, was it avoidable, given that we already had a president clearly bent on implementing harsh border policies? Who or what around him could have stopped it? Well, in particular, you know, Scott Lloyd, who was the director of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, was warned on multiple occasions about the damage, the long lasting trauma that family separations would do to children. And ostensibly, this was the man who was the custodian of the thousands of migrant children in the custody of the United States government. And in particular, Jonathan White, uh, commander in the U.S. Public Health Commission Corps under Health and Human Services, has testified publicly to this, that he warned Scott Lloyd about the long-lasting damage that separations would do to these children. Scott Lloyd, of course, is the same official who tried to ban abortions in HHS custody for young migrant girls. And the bottom line is, when you look at the actions of Scott Lloyd, he did anything but stop family separations uh, from happening. One official later told me that he believed 
that this was the greatest human rights catastrophe of his lifetime uh, in seeing this take place under the leadership uh, of Scott Lloyd. And had the career officials in HHS, child welfare professionals, um, whose motto is not only to do no harm, like in the medical profession, but to put the best interests of the client first, and that's the children, this never would have happened. The best interests of the children were very obviously not put first here. The officials in HHS and the professionals were certainly pushing for that all along. And there were a lot of people involved in this process, none of whom resigned on principle, none of whom came out and became a whistleblower at that time, uh, which says a lot about how um, certain people's morals are corrupted working in this administration. Just to go back to an earlier point you made about this being a decades-long tragedy, a lot of Trump officials and Trump supporters, and some on the left, say it's unfair to pin what you call an American tragedy wholly on Trump because it was the Obama administration that built many of the cages that were used in 2018. It was the Obama administration that put unaccompanied minors from Central America in detention. Uh, There was a big overlap between a lot of their policies and practices uh, at the southern border between those two administrations. What do you say to them? Well, in, in, in some measure, they're right. I mean, the Obama administration did build the McAllen Border Patrol Processing Center where I saw the children in cages. Those cages were built by the Obama administration. Uh, and they believe that was the best option at the time. Certainly activists and immigration uh, rights lawyers uh, and such uh, didn't believe that and were extremely vocal in voicing their opposition uh, at the time. The Trump administration had the opportunity to go in a different direction. They never signaled that they, that was their intention. In fact, they always signaled a harsher uh, immigration policy than the Obama administration. But they didn't have to institute the family separation policy. The Obama administration considered implementing the family separation policy. Some of the same officials within the Department of Homeland Security brought it up. And in the book, I talk about how on Valentine's Day 2017, less than a month into the Trump administration, some of the officials that overlapped from the Obama administration into the Trump administration basically revived, resuscitated a policy, a rejected, discarded policy uh, that even the Obama administration, which was was not beloved by immigration activists, um, yes. put to the side. And and this was a conscious, deliberate decision by the Trump administration to move forward with something that they knew all along was a deterrence policy that was that was so bad it would try to scare people away from coming to the United States. And John Kelly, uh, when he was the Secretary of Homeland Security in March of 2017, admitted it freely on on CNN. So just to be clear. Uh, what Trump did in 2018 at the border with these quote-unquote separations is much worse than anything Obama or, for that matter, George W. Bush or Bill Clinton did at the border. That is fair to say based on your own reporting and research in this book. Well, the reason I say that this was unprecedented was that it was it was systematic child abuse, in the words of Physicians for Human Rights or American Academy for Pediatrics, at the hands of the Trump administration. Deliberate, systematic child abuse or torture. The Obama administration, uh, the Clinton administration, the Bush administration all had their own very harsh deterrence policies. I'm, I'm sitting in Arizona now where hundreds of people have died trying to cross in the desert because of border infrastructure walls like the ones I'm looking at in front of my face as I talk to you. Um, but never was the policy directed specifically at children for the purpose of hurting parents and children. Mm. Uh, and and therein is the difference. I mean, that's where the Trump Good administration point. took it to a level that had never been seen before. It doesn't mean that for a long time there haven't been cruel, harsh, and, and deadly immigration policies. But in this case, it was a stated policy to cause harm in order to stop people from coming. 
that's for sure. And they would never admit that, that it this was the purpose was to hurt children. Um, but when you say deterrence, you have to be deterred by something. And the something here uh, was, was trauma. So you paint a picture in the book of a president who shock horror is, uh, you know, uh, over his, you know, he's out, of, he's out of control, but he also doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, there's a huge culture of fear around him, you say, in the White House. You talk about the chaos surrounding this policy. Obviously, we know very much about the Trump administration's incompetence when it comes to any area of public policy. But in my view, there's also not enough discussion in our industry, Jacob, in the quote unquote liberal media about the ideology that drives a lot of Trump's immigration policy. This is not just them trying to look tough or messing up. You have a White House that openly plays footsie with white nationalists Mm -hmm. and a top Trump advisor, Stephen Miller, who leads on this issue and who is at best an apologist for white nationalism, at worst, a card-carrying white nationalist himself. This is a guy who, as the Southern Poverty Law Center, the SPLC, has thoroughly documented via his own leaked emails, has promoted white nationalist literature, pushed racist immigration stories, obsessed over the loss of Confederate symbols. And yet we just don't talk about it as much as we should. It's like we're too polite to mention the open white nationalism from this White House when we talk about immigration and border controls. Another way to put it is that the target of the Trump administration's anti-immigrant policies are more often than not brown people who come through the southern border where the majority of people who enter this country um, illegally or ultimately stay in this country illegally come via airplane from countries other than Central America or Latin America by overstaying visas. And the Trump administration has not or did not at that time target visa overstays as their primary concern when that was, by definition, by numbers, where most people who were in the United States, quote unquote, illegally, um, were coming from. The, the policy has always been, the ire has always been targeted people with a different skin color coming from the southern border, uh, not at the majority of people who are entering the country and staying in the country uh, illegally. And you said it. I mean, that's that's why this policy is or was, I guess you could still say is, family separation is still happening, racist. I mean, this is not a policy that is being targeted at people who are flying here and staying here after going to school or getting a job or some other form of, of, of immigration to the United States. He's targeting people who come through the southern border, uh, period. Just to clarify for our listeners, you say family separation is still happening. Just briefly, how is it still happening? Well, the Trump administration is giving families an option, uh, either separate or be deported or held indefinitely in family detention. That's called binary choice. It's it's the type of policy that's being put forward. Um, you won't be surprised to learn, Mehdi, that nobody is selecting family separation as an option when they're presented with it. Yeah. But it is still an option that the Trump administration is giving migrants in custody. It's a catch-22 situation. You know, either get kicked out of the country and your child stays here, be in indefinite family detention with your child, or separate from your child, let your child go free, but you won't see your child because you'll, you know, you'll continue to be uh, detained. It's just family separation uh, with a different mechanism. Um, The quote unquote family separation crisis of 2018, I think we would agree, Jacob, was one of the biggest crises, one of the most horrifying episodes of the Trump presidency. And given how many big crises and horrific episodes they've been over the past four years, that's a pretty high bar that it met. Um, Even by the standard of awful Trump scandals, this one stood out. And yet he survived. The people around him survived. A lot of people just forgot about it. Washington, the media, largely moved on. 
If we hadn't moved on, if there'd been consequences for the lies, the law-breaking, the racism, the child abuse, do you think we might have avoided or even been better prepared for many of the other Trump crises that have since followed it? It's such a good question. I, I would like to think so, but that goes back to the separation from the American public about what's happening and, mm. and why. And and so often I find that too many of us are disconnected from the reality of what's going on in our country. It's too easy to look around in our own neighborhood yep. and talk about our own concerns versus what's happening at the border. I'll give you one example. I went to Tornillo where they had that tent city uh, in the wake of the separation crisis and had all the migrant boys house there. And and I write about this in the book. I asked a local farmer growing pomegranates what his main concern was. uh, And he said, uh, the production of food. And and this was a man that was a stone's throw away from thousands of kids being locked up in a tent in a hundred degree heat in the middle of the South Texas desert. And, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget that because, you know, if, if he's going to forget about it, or if it's not going to be top of mind for him, it isn't going to be for people in suburban America either, and which is why I think you know it's just it was so important to me to write this book, not just to remind people of this, but to answer those questions for myself. How could this possibly have happened? How could we possibly mm. have moved on? You know, and 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 what is it going to take for this to not happen again? Well, I'm so glad you wrote the book. And one of the issues that really bothers me is that there's been very little accountability for the main players in this saga. Uh, Former Trump chief of staff, former DHS secretary, General John Kelly, went off to work in the private sector. He even joined the board of Caliburn International, a company that operates the largest shelter for unaccompanied migrant children. Oh, the irony. Uh, His successor as DHS Secretary, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, was invited as recently as October last year to speak at Fortune magazine's most powerful women's summit in Washington, D.C. There doesn't seem to have been much accountability. Not just no accountability, many, but some of these people have been put in charge of the response or at least on the team to the coronavirus outbreak that's killed over 100,000 people in this country. And the early days of the coronavirus crisis, I remember sitting at home on lockdown like everybody else, watching up on the podium, Chad Wolf, now the acting secretary of Homeland Security, then a top deputy to Kirsten Nielsen, who, as my colleague Julia Ainsley first reported, was involved in the drafting of the initial family separation policy to be presented to her. Katie Waldman, as I mentioned, was the spokeswoman for Kirsten Nielsen and is now the spokeswoman for the vice president of the United States. It seems as though uh, the people that were involved in the family separation policy have not been disciplined or reprimanded or faced accountability. On the contrary, they've been elevated to the positions. And you mentioned John Kelly, who's started working with Caliburn, this company that is profiting off of the detention of child migrants uh, at multiple facilities now uh, along the along the southwest border. Um, it, I would say that it's baffling and stupefying. But again, it's just like you said, it's another one of these um, consequence less actions of the Trump administration that, you know, they seem to benefit from when, com- you know, common sense would say they should they should be punished. By the way, at that Fortune Summit, um, my good friend Amna Nawaz of PBS News asked Kirsten Nielsen if she regretted the so-called family separation policy. I'm asking you if you regret making that decision. I don't regret enforcing the law because I took an oath to do that, as did everybody at the Department of Homeland Security. We don't make the laws. We asked Congress to change the law. Congress reviewed the law in 2006 and decided to continue to make it illegal to cross in that manner. When you hear Nielsen saying that, Jacob, what's your reaction? The same bewilderment that I felt when I saw her tweet that there is no family separation policy period. I thought that that interview, by the way, was spectacular. And the line of questioning was perfect because 
Kirsten Nielsen is an expert in slipping away from questions about the family separation policy. If anyone should face accountability for the policy, uh, it is her. She had to decide to, uh, to sign, and I outlined it in the book, a decision memo that sat on her desk with three options to implement the end of what is known as catch and release, the idea that migrants who come to the southern border would be released to the interior uh, with their families uh, until their immigration case would be um, adjudicated in the courts, until they had to show up for court. And by the way, um, many migrants, most migrants do show up for that process because they want to attain asylum uh, in this country. She chose of the three options, the most severe, the most punitive, uh, family separations. It was a deliberate and clear decision by her. She had to sign her name literally on the dotted line uh, for the policy. And the idea that she doesn't face any responsibility for this, that it that it wasn't something that she ultimately would come to regret, I just don't believe it. I don't, knowing um, what I know about her, having sat face to face with her um, at the start of this policy, I do not believe that that is truly the way that she feels. And I know certainly that she knows the responsibility that she bears for it. And like every ex-Trump official, especially once he leaves office, everyone's going to be spinning how they were actually resisting inside the administration. They were the good guys pushing back against awful policies from the top. And we focus a lot on Trump. And we should focus also on these ex-Trump officials who are trying to rehabilitate themselves. They should really be shunned uh, by polite society. But sadly, we know Washington, D.C., they won't be. They aren't being shunned. Um, That's depressing. One last question for you, Jacob. Given what you saw with your own eyes, what you heard in terms of testimony from some of these parents and children, the trauma of it, as you put it, how hard a book was this for you to write? Certainly not as hard as being separated from your child indefinitely in the minds of a lot of these parents. It was it was difficult to revisit, but it's a Covering family separations is something that will have changed me forever for my entire life. I think there's a lot of people out there who, having watched the story, not just from my coverage, but from the wonderful journalism that was done, you know, during and after this policy, you know, it's changed a lot of people. And for me, this was something that I wanted to do to answer questions that I didn't know the answer to in real time. And it's also something that I wanted to do for Juan and Jose, because the reason that they decided to participate in this story with me was so that it never happens again. And and I really mean that. You know, I don't know if it's kosher to say that as a journalist, that, that covering this and writing this book, you know, for me has a specific and what I hope is a positive outcome. But that's really what this was about for me. And and to revisit it was was difficult. Um, but but it's, it, it's nothing compared to what Juan and Jose and 5,000 other children went through. Jacob, congratulations on an important book. Thank you so much for joining me on Deconstructed. Thank you, Matty. Appreciate it. That was Jacob Soboroff, author of the new book, Separated Inside an American Tragedy. And that's our show. And we're going to be on a little bit of a summer break here on Deconstructed. The show will be back in August. Hope you're all able to have a break too. Stay safe while we're gone. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps new people find the show and if you want to give us feedback email us at podcasts at theintercept.com thanks so much see you next month
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 